At some point, I have to ask Michael if he's got some Southern blood in him. So every once in a while, it comes out. I know he's from Chicago, but maybe it's the south side of Chicago. <laughs> I don't think I've said do Lord in a long time. Man, probably since I was a child. If, if you're new to church, um, you may hear those songs about being washed in the blood of the Lamb and, and go like, uh, ew, right? Stop thinking about that if you're a church person. Imagine if you've never been to church before and you come in a setting where people are talking about getting washed in blood. There's a very unique phrase that belongs to people who believe in Jesus Christ. If you're wondering what's going on behind that and, and the language and the description, we're actually going to get into that this morning as we look at the creation account in Genesis. I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. You're going to feel like I'm pushing the gas pedal a little bit this morning based on how fast we haven't been going in the previous weeks, um, but you'll understand why. It'll all fit together. As you're going there, maybe you have it electronically or a hard copy or you're going to watch on the screen. Um, let me remind you from home, you'll be able to see the Bible verses on the screen as well. So really glad that you're here, glad that we're all together, either virtually or in person, and we get to dive into God's Word in just a moment. But before we do that, I would love to pray with you. Would you join me in that? Father, we don't want to take lightly in any way the things that are being discussed here this morning. So we would ask that you receive our attention to this moment as serious and sincere, wanting to know more about you, wanting to know more about who we are to you and, and our place in this world. But I'm especially mindful, Father, of those whom we represent here, that it's not just those of us who are in the auditorium or those that are watching virtually, but we're connected with so many people. So many people that we interact with throughout the week, Father, whether at work or in our family life or our social circle. God, I, I pray that for the sake of those individuals who might have questions about these things in relation to you, that you would use us. So cause us even more so to drink in the truth of your word this morning, that we might use these things that you equip us with to be a voice in our community. We pray for these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. amen. We are really prone to forget that God did not leave the record of origins for our time alone. He left it for the ancient people of Africa and for Egypt and for China and for Russia and for South America. He left it for women like Cleopatra. He left it for men like Napoleon. He left it for individuals who lived before this modern age, who didn't have the benefit of microbiology, who didn't understand genetics, who didn't necessarily understand physics, and certainly didn't have the benefit of things like the Hubble Space Scope. But yet God's Word spoke to them. And the reason I point that out specifically is this. God's word doesn't depend upon modern science to validate it. It has stood for millennia. It has stood for those individuals and billions of others who've gone before us to understand who God declares himself to be. So God's record doesn't need modern science to validate it. It's taken modern science a very, very long time to catch up to what God had already declared to be true. What the Bible does demand is it does demand, it absolutely requires faith. Faith to believe the things that God declared. Faith like you see stated in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Imagine the ancients reading that. That thing came into being out of what was not seen. It was made from what was not seen. But by faith, we understand that God did that. If you're new to church, this would help you in regards to what faith is. Faith is believing what God has revealed. When people, people speak of, I have faith, they're saying, I believe what God has revealed, and I believe that it's true. Let me expand on that just a little bit. 
by faith, most would say in the church, that they readily accept that Jesus calmed the sea by his spoken word. Allow me to ask you, did that happen over a long period of time and it took weeks and weeks and months for the sea to calm, or did it happen instantaneously? It happened instantaneously because God spoke. We're also told in the New Testament that Jesus formed new limbs or healed individuals who were paralyzed, created eyesight for people who were born blind. Those who were crippled could walk again. Did that happen over a long period of time or did it happen instantly? It happened at the instant command of God. Or take one that's really familiar, Jesus making water into wine with no fermentation process required whatsoever. Instantly, in a moment, created the best wine that anyone had ever tasted. God is capable of doing it that quickly. In the same way, when he says, I forgive you of your sin, he forgives you instantly. In the moment that you confess faith in Jesus Christ, God extends to you forgiveness of the sin of your past, your present, your future. It's not something that happens over a long period of time, but rather God says, I extend that to you. I give that to you. The reason I bring these things up is this. Where I land on these issues of creation and what the Bible declares about who God is and what he can do, what the Bible declares to be true, it's not a secondary issue in your life. It's the primary issue, and it has tremendous bearing on your capacity to believe that God's word is reliable, to take it in faith. Part of what we've been examining through this E2E series as we dig into Genesis, how we can, in this modern age living in 2022, have confidence in what God declares in His Word to be absolutely true, especially when we dig into the complex narrative like we're going to get into today in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. Because last time what we saw was perfection. Last time we were together, last weekend, we looked at how God exquisitely dialed everything in within the universe in order for humans to have a perfect environment. Perfect humans in a perfect environment, everything exquisitely dialed in, prepared to perfection. And so we pushed down in Isaiah 45, 18. Isaiah emphasized the reality that when God formed the earth, he says, he formed it to be inhabited. Everything necessary, fine-tuned, super fine-tuned for life to flourish. So when you get into the study guide this week, you'll find that Rich has titled chapter 7 that we're into this week in the study guide. If you haven't grabbed one, by the way, they're out in the atrium. They're free. Just take one with you when you go. He's titled it Garden Life with God. It's a study guide that goes along with where we're at. Life in the garden with God. I've found in my studies over the years that garden life with God in Genesis is actually a reflection of what life is going to be like for you in eternity. We find that in the book of Revelation. Garden life with God in Genesis was, we're told, filled with rivers, streams, fruit trees, tree of life was there. Well, Revelation says the exact same thing. When you get to eternity one day, you're going to find crystal clear streams flowing through heaven. You're going to find fruit trees, and we're also told in the center is the tree of life. Genesis and Revelation, they kind of reflect each other that way. Water, plants, fruit trees, all forms of trees. I would challenge you that later today when you get a chance, because we're not going to go verse by verse through chapter 2 this morning, we're going to balance it with chapter 3. I'm going to challenge you to read chapter 2 later today when you get a chance and read it slowly and read it deliberately and discover and ponder how very perfect, how very good it was when God pronounced it very good. But as you do that, let me explain something for you. If you've not read Genesis chapter 2 before, know this, it's, it's a compliment to Genesis chapter 1 because many people when they read chapter 2, they think, wait, is, is this a different account of creation? Is this talking about different people being created? No, this is the way it works. In, in the Hebrew way of writing, it's very common for a Hebrew author to write something in a factual form and then to write something in a poetic form to reinforce what they had just said. Remember that when the Bible was written, it wasn't written with the chapters that you have today or with verse divisions. There were no numbers associated. It just flowed together. What we call chapter 1 actually was merged together with chapter 2. 
And so what you find Moses doing is he's emphasizing details in chapter 2 that you didn't necessarily get in chapter 1, just in a poetic way of expressing it, saying, here's the things that God did. But I'm going to challenge you to read chapter 2 later so that you get the full breadth of what's going on, because there's a lot of imagery there, imagery like this. Look with me at Genesis 2, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. Now, right away, you discover that Moses has just emphasized that something pleases God that pleases you. God creates things that are pleasing to the sight, not just things that are functional, but he likes beauty. So we're told he created things that are pleasing to the sight and they're good for food. Now, these kind of images conjure up spectacular thoughts for us. As you read chapter 2, you're going to find it mentions four rivers that are flowing through this region called Eden. And apparently, there's waterfalls associated with it, and they're flowing through the lands. And we're told that the lands are rich in gold, they're rich in jewels, and there's lush vegetation. And God took care of that vegetation by doing this. Look with me at verse 6. A mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So some form pre-flood before the days of Noah, a mist coming up like an underground sprinkling system to take care of the vegetation. These are creating images in my mind that are more magnificent than anything that Hollywood can conceive of, especially when you come to two major differences between that environment and the environment that you and I know today. Unlike any other portion of Scripture, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is a complete absence of sin. You've never known that. I have never known that. You'll know that one day in eternity. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're going to experience that in eternity. But what Adam and Eve get to experience is a complete absence of sin. But also this. Adam and Eve are uniquely different in one very specific way that is completely different than you. They're much more like the holy angels in this particular area, this particular area being they had the power of contrary choice. You didn't have that. You were born into sin. This planet was already fallen when you arrived, but they have the power of contrary choice. We didn't get a chance to choose. Paul wrote this in Romans 5.12, through one man, sinner, entered into the world. That means it wasn't here previously. It came in through actions. We discovered last week that when we use the name Adam, it actually is Adam in the Hebrew language, and it's representing mankind or all of humanity, men and women combined. And the Bible says, Adam, 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 humankind, through those two progenitors, sin entered into the world. That's why you find King David writing in the Old Testament, in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin, I already came into the world before I left the womb. I was in the womb of my mother and I'm in sin already. Now, mind you, that we did not get to choose does not render us any less responsible for being accountable for the things that we do know. But I want you to consider Adam and Eve for just a minute. Consider what we talked about last week, that they are perfect in this condition in physical form. They're perfect in their spiritual relationship. They're perfect in their marriage relationship. And they have perfect mental capacity. We talked last week about the ability that Adam had to name all of the animals with massive vocabulary, the ability to uh, call them out and identify them by their species. So far beyond where we're at, then we get this detail in verse 8, chapter 2, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So it's not the Garden of Eden, it's a garden in Eden. I specify that for this reason. Eden is a vast region. It's not like a small garden in your backyard. This is a huge area when you consider the four rivers flowing through it and the jewels that are described that are present there. This is a very big area and God formed and then he placed Adam in the garden, in the land of Eden. Now, Eden actually means delight. 
and garden means compound. So it's a compound of delight, a pristine area that's very, very protected. This compound is a protected place of pristine beauty, completely untouched, unadulterated by anything else, and we discover it's a place of intimacy, a place of intimacy with God because they're in relationship with God, created for relationship, and so God comes to see them and walk with them during the day. But it's also the birthplace of marital intimacy, and we see this in verse 25. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And chapter 2 comes to what appears to be an abrupt close. Adam and Eve are literally in paradise. What pops in your mind when you think paradise? Maybe you think Maui. Maybe you think Costa Rica. Maybe you think St. Thomas. Whatever conjures up in your mind the imagery, I'm sure it falls far short of what this is, but we find those two here doing what God created them for. And we don't know how much time elapsed from this moment, this point in time, until the events of chapter 3. But it's clear it was before the children were born. And they are in absolute utopia. Momentarily, before we dive over to chapter 3, just go back with me mentally to chapter 1 for a moment, and we find this statement, chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We talked about last week that they're created not only in the image of God, but part of that image is jointly to rule, to have dominion over the things that God created. To be the authority figure over this beautifully made planet that God had entrusted to us. None of the other of God's creatures are capable, nor are they designed to rule and care for the planet. That sets us apart. We're completely unique in that way. And so fulfilling this responsibility is part of the way we bring glory to God. And... God's objective in bringing about this magnificent, finely tuned creation is that we would have relationship with Him and with each other, perfect relationship. That also is part of our unique identity of being created in the image of God. So let this stagger your mind for a moment. Chosen by God as a unique part of His creation to be in relationship with Him for all eternity. That's His intention. So to accomplish that, He intricately designs a cradle for our habitation. And this planet in its unfallen condition is a reflection of His passionate pursuit of love for us and His intention to have a permanent relationship with us. Now, over to chapter 3. To this point, humans have very clear operating guidelines. They're told what they can do and what they cannot do. You find that in Genesis 2.16. God says this, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Theologians and individuals who spent time studying the Bible, maybe you've done this over the course of your life, you understand what God was talking about there specifically is two forms of death. He's talking about the spiritual death, which began immediately. The decay, the disease that set in immediately if you disobey God. And the decay would lead ultimately to the physical death. You will die. You're going to die if you disobey me. Now, this is really interesting that he would make that statement because these two have never known disobedience. They live in a perfect world. They don't know disobedience to the one who made them, but nonetheless, God sees it fit to give them very clear boundary lines and very clear consequences for disobedience. Now then, when chapter 3 opens, another intelligent being arrives on the scene one who's got great awareness, and it's hard, hard shift from the tranquility of chapter 1 and chapter 2, but this is what we're told. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
I hold for a moment, not wanting to take anything for granted. I never know how many people might be new to church when we do these things. They're not talking about that he was good with knitting needles or anything like that. Okay. When it says crafty, it's not talking about craft. It's talking about being shrewd. He's more shrewd than any other of the creation which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Whoa, time out. I thought everything was good. I thought everything was very good. Isn't it supposed to be perfect? How did that get there? So you're in the garden, and everything is very good. God pronounced it that way. There's the birds, there's the animals, there's the fish, there's the flowing streams, there's the jewels. You got animals with short legs, animals with tall legs, and they're all living in harmony. And we're told this reptile-like creature shows up on the scene. So when it says serpent, don't look for this word in your notes. You won't see it around the screen. It's the word nakesh in Hebrew. And nakesh means reptile, but not what you're thinking of when you think of reptile. You're immediately your mind goes to serpent, and you think snake. And this is kind of like that, but it's describing actually something with scales, but we actually don't know what. Let me expand on that with you for just a little bit. When you think scales, you might also be thinking, what is this, like a dragon, something like that? Here's what we know. It's of the created order of the animals, but it has the power of speech and the power of reason. And you can assume he's upright because later in chapter 3, part of the curse, he's going to crawl. He's being told that there will be judgment. So at this point, it, it seems to be upright and not on its belly. I've never seen anything like this. And yet it belongs to the animal kingdom. So we're going to say this is a pre-curse creature with personality that speaks with intelligence. And even this more subtly yet, Eve is not surprised when the Nakesh approaches her and begins a conversation. I'd be freaking out, wouldn't you? What? But in this pre-fall world, we've got something that's completely unique, and she's not surprised by it. Let me go off on a rabbit trail with you for just a minute. And I've told you before, I'm not sure it's a rabbit trail. If I tell you it's a rabbit trail, but bear with me. You are completely unique, not just in the fact that you're made in the image of God, but you're unique in this way. I, I believe and I understand as I read Scripture that we are a novelty to the angels, especially to this point in time, because they've never previously seen anything else like us. We contain the image of God, we contain the breath of God, and we are an eternal soul. Angels are eternal souls, so they've seen that. But we have the power to procreate. We can reproduce other eternal souls. A man and a wife come together, they produce a child, and you've just produced another eternal soul. And that's, that's a novelty to the angels. They haven't seen that, and, and God has blessed us with that ability. There's no procreation among the angels. They don't reproduce other eternal souls. Jesus said they neither, neither marry nor are they given in marriage. And the Bible goes a step further, and it makes it very clear that this is actually Satan, a fallen angel, speaking through this nakesh. And using this nakesh, the serpent-like creature, with great awareness to speak to Eve. Follow the flow of this conversation with those thoughts in mind. Pick it up again in verse 1. He said to the woman, indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I want you to notice the subtlety of the change in the content of what's being delivered here. The approach is to get Eve to question the word of God. And I don't mean questioning in a good way, like leading to, I want more information, but questioning challenge. That's the approach that he's using because questioning leads to distrust and distrust leads to disobedience. The Bible says very clearly that when Satan appears, he appears as an angel of light. And the intent is appearing as an angel of light is to get you to believe that what he's saying to you is actually for your good to believe that he's telling you the truth. 
Now, here's the strategy behind it. If Satan can get you to believe God's word can't be trusted, score. So here comes the challenge, to challenge God's word. And I think it's kind of a loose paraphrase. We'll, we'll say the Bible according to Kring, okay? Just give me, a, give me some latitude on this. If I paraphrase it, it's going to be like this. So, Eve, I guess you can't really have everything. I mean, I, I know you've got garden life, and I know that he comes to walk with you, but you can't really have everything because he's holding back on you. You don't really have it all, even though you might think you do. And like a spiritual catapult, the very first time in human history, spiritual warfare is released. And he uses pride and he uses lust as this method to get her to question God. Mankind has been given dominion over God's creation. Authority to rule over as the kings of the earth, to entrust it to them, would mean that they would carry out God's actions. So they've been given dominion over all the living creatures, the sky creatures, the land creatures, the, the sea creatures. We're told in chapter 2, verse 16, that Adam actually even named the serpent. So the first failure is the failure to follow God's explicit command to exercise dominion over this lesser creature who's come to bring temptation and to deliver it in the form of an assault against God. And so what he's insinuating is what God declares as truth is subject to reinterpretation, that you can negotiate the truth. And so he launches the attack with this thought, Eve, Let's talk about how you feel about that. Do you really feel that God's been fair with you? Do you feel that he's given you what you need? And he's smuggling it in so subtly, the change to God's word. And when he does that, he has you if you don't know God's word. Compare this. He did the exact same thing with Jesus. At the temptation of Christ, go to the New Testament and read it you'll find that he quoted God's word to Jesus. You're telling God what God said and trying to twist it for your own good. That's what Satan does. And so he uses God's word against her and launches this catapult and insinuates what God declares as truth is subject to reinterpretation. And he begins with this thought. And the thought is that we have the right to modify what God declares to be true. I'm going to say this, and I hope you agree with me by saying amen to this, but I would declare to you that God's word is not subject to human judgment. We cannot reinterpret it to make it match our feelings. And the fact that he has said, has God said... Something you should notice is a very subtle giveaway because in chapter 2, verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 13, verse 15, verse 21, it says, and the Lord God said, and the Lord God said, and the Lord God said, and the Lord God said. Satan doesn't put Lord in there because Lord constitutes authority. And the one thing that Satan hates is to put an emphasis on the authority of God. He hates the rule of God. God's authority is the very thing that Satan sought to overthrow. Has God said, even though he's a lesser creature, he doesn't honor God by saying the Lord God. But that's not the biggest issue. The bigger issue going on here is he's focusing Eve on what she doesn't have and sets her up to evaluate God's authority this way. Isn't that a bit punitive, Eve? He's holding back on you. Don't you know when you have what you really need, it'll meet the needs in your life? That God already has given them everything. It's completely tossed aside as being insignificant because Satan doesn't want you to think about what you do have. He goes to that one tree in your life. That one tree 
that leaves a blank for anybody to fill in. Your life would be so much better if you just had blank. What would you fill in that blank with? He knew what would resonate with Eve because she was created as a person who had dominion and authority, but some had been held back from her. Look with me at the next verse, verse 2 of chapter 3. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And from this moment on, humanity is headed for disaster. There's no dominion present here. There's no authority of the greater creature shutting down the lesser creature when the lesser creature is challenging God. Note this. Even with 100% mental capacity, she is still susceptible to the deception of Satan. And Satan hears her response and pounces and begins blatantly negating God and lies about the very truth that God declared. Watch his lie. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Liar! See, there's times when you've got to be polite, and there's times when you have to call it out. I'm calling Satan out. Jesus said he's the father of lies, and he's lying about a holy God. And Satan's lie is this. You can disobey God without consequences. You can sin without consequences. That's what he's asking her to believe. God said, you will die. Satan says, you won't die. Satan calls God a liar when God has already declared him the father of lies. And the ultimate deception is there will not be judgment for sin, Eve. So he sweetens the pot. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that is a lucrative offer. I can be like God. I mean, I've got dominion over the earth, but I'm going to be God-like? This is a, a really strong indication for you that Satan knows human nature and knows what to go after in your life. He doesn't place the fruit in her hand. He doesn't force her to eat. Much more subtle and shrewd than that. It's delivered this way. God's holding back on you. If you only had possessions, if you only had sex, if you only had money, if you only had more power, then you would be complete. Then your life would be fulfilled. James records this in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 15, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. The Bible's saying it only takes a thought. Jesus says when a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery. It only takes a thought. That's why the Bible commands us to take captive every thought. Because once the seed is planted, what happens is it goes from the mind to the emotion and from the emotion to the will, and it goes from the will to action. And that's exactly what you find Eve doing. Look with me at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Where is the actual failure? The actual failure is in this, the moment that she believes something other than God. The moment that she takes greater credibility to Satan's temptation than she does what God said to her. Let me read to you from 1 John, echoing the things that Jesus said. John recorded this in 1 John 2.15. Do not, don't look in the screen for this, just hear it. If you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. Listen to this word. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, catch these three things. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
If you look at the satanic system of managing this world, you find the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, those three things every single time. What did Eve do? She looked on it. It looked good. She realized it would make her wise. All three things are confound within that very statement. We keep going further and we find sin is not content to party alone. Sin wants to drag other people along with it. So verse 6, it finishes out. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And so suddenly and explosively what was once a pristine, perfect world is now filled with perversion and evil and they're drenched in sin. And you don't even see it in verse 6, but it's coming. It drips from them and they reek of corruption. Verse 7 expresses that. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. No matter what degree of regret they have in this moment, no matter how much shame they feel that their man and woman parts are being exposed, no matter how much guilt they cannot unring that bell and they feel exposed and they feel polluted and they need to hide and they've never known this type of reaction. It's a physical mixed with a spiritual and it makes them sick in their gut. We've got to do something about this. And Adam has a response while the fruit is still dripping down his chin. At the sound of the Lord, when he hears God entering the garden, his first instinct is to run and hide. I want you to pay very close attention to that. In their sin, they do not turn to God. Instead, they resort to human capacity. What humans are very tempted to do, and you find in this the seed of hypocritical world man-made religion. We're going to fix the problem with man's activity. Watch, verse 8. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You recall as a child doing something that violated house rules and hiding from your parents? I do. I remember doing that. Come on, I can't be the only one. Don't look at me like that. I know you did. You would run and hide hoping that maybe the moment of frustration on your parents' part that you had broken a rule would pass. Maybe, maybe they'd get over the hump. And so you run and you evade and you stay away until you think maybe the storm has partially passed. I, I did that so many times that I learned over time that the very thing that I thought they were going to find out about, they didn't find out about. So I'd come back in the house and life was going on normal. And then like five minutes later, they'd find out, and then I'd get the full brunt of the storm. But you find human nature here. You find the behavior that's so familiar to us. No one has to tell them that they no longer qualify to be in the presence of God. There's no newsflash. They know. They know because of the guilt, and because of the guilt they run. It popped in my head during the 9 o'clock service. I just thought I would share it with you. R.C. Sproul is a theologian who's passed away several years ago, but a well-known theologian in the Western world. And R.C. Sproul said that many times when he interacted with people who are of atheistic convictions or of agnostic convictions... He typically would engage them in conversation by asking this one question. It's a brilliant question. What do you do with your guilt? How do you answer that if you don't believe there's a God? It's a great question because we all know we have it. We know we drip with it. What do you do with your guilt? Well, their reaction was to run and to hide. Moving down to verse 9, we find that God has to call them out. 
Chapter 3, verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? See, they're so desperate to cover their body, but they can't cover their sin, so they hide, but you can't play hide-and-seek with an omniscient God. So what are you going to do? You run for the trees. There's some dialogue you're going to find in 8, 9, 10, and 11 that takes place between God and the humans. Read it later, but I want you to see just what was really grievous to me in verse 12. Verse 12 says, The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Adam might have 100% use of his brain power, but he's not exhibiting a lot of wisdom right there. That's not a good strategy when you throw your wife under the bus like that. Why would you go there? Because the immediate instinct is to blame. And the blame goes like this. It's not my fault. I didn't even know what a woman was. I went to sleep single and I woke up married. (laughs) An individual that was in the 9 o'clock service pointed out to me that Adam didn't in that moment just throw Eve under the bus. He threw God under the bus. This is the one you gave to me. If you've been in relationship for any length of time, you know that one of the hardest things to do in a relationship is to accept responsibility for failure. Because accepting responsibility for failure requires shame. And shame and humility go hand in hand, but sin doesn't exhibit humility. It might exhibit shame, but humility is a step beyond that the humility to actually own it. So instead of shame, we naturally go to blame, and that's exactly what you find him doing, and the conversation is evasive and it's deceptive, and it tells us all we need to know about the nature of depravity. No longer is holiness in them. So along with their fall, they've exposed our entire planet to a collapse, which is no longer this place of perfection. We're told this from Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him. By the way, that's God, the Him there. Of Him, God, who subjected it in hope, in looking forward, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. It's part of the judgment. We're going to get into that next week. So this is 7.A, next week is 7.B, so that we understand what's going to happen here as a result of their decision. Here's it is in a nutshell. Sin infected everything. Where there was no corruption, suddenly there's disease, there's death, there's violence, and thousands of years later, you find Paul writing Romans to articulate this in the best way that he can. Through the Spirit of God, he writes Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all because this unleashed an avalanche of suffering, and it could not be held back. And it's like a rock slide. It buries everything in creation under this debris of sin. So Paul writes later in Romans 8, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. From this moment on, Life on our planet is defined by disease and defect and decay and betrayal and war and death. And it's the darkest moment in all of history. Those wrinkles on your face are only part of it. All betrayal, all selfishness, all corruption, all intimidation, all manipulation, all deviation, it all comes right from there. Yet, wedged in the midst of this fall, in between verses 6 and 21, the grace of God appears on the scene for the first time we see specifically in this action of God. Look with me at this at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Remember what I said earlier about covering their man parts and female parts with loin, with the, the, the fig leaf, that that was an action of man trying to cover up sin. And, and that's a, a false way of having religion. The religion of mankind attempts to sow fig leaves. 
It's an effort to cover up through works, trying to fix things. But a person who's walking in grace, they learn that that won't work. It has to be God who deals with my brokenness. You can attempt to cover yourself, and many try to do this. Many people try to cover themselves with works, and in the end they discover you will only find it can only be covered by God. Why do I use verse 21 to emphasize that? The Lord God made them garments of skin. God had to kill a living being which shed blood in order to harvest the skin to make covering for those individuals who were living in sin. It has to be God who steps in. God has to be the one who clothes us. He has to deal with the failure of sin, and it requires the shedding of blood. You're wondering why people in church sing, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb? This relates directly to this. The first shedding of blood because of someone else's failure is found in Genesis chapter 3. God's using this as powerful imagery for us to understand what He has to do. The natural regeneration, the procreation, the reproducing of biological men and women is found rooted in Adam and Eve. We are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and because of that, we're born into sin. And because we're born into sin, we are born separated from God. The relationship is not there. The relationship is lost right from the get-go before you even came out of the womb. Our ancient parents learned that God could not walk with them anymore, so they're sent out. That's what you're going to really examine next week. They can't even walk with God in the garden. But, New Hope Church, praise God that He determined to deal with our nakedness and dress us in His righteousness. That's what you're about to celebrate in communion. The shedding of the blood to make us right with God so the relationship is restored. So when the fullness of time came, at God's initiative, the Lamb of God arrives on the scene. And He came and He walked among His creation once again because he's determined to dwell with us so that you could say, just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, I come. I come because of what you've done. The spiritual regeneration makes you once again the sons of God, the daughters of God because of what Jesus did. Paul said this is such a serious issue that when he wrote what I'm about to read to you from that paragraph in Corinthians, you better not take it lightly. Now, mind you, what he's writing in the very first paragraph is specifically to the church. Hear the words that he wrote when he recorded what the Lord said on the night that he was betrayed. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, church, that on the night that the Lord Jesus, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, church. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He writes that to the church because the church needs to be reminded that when you lift the cup and you lift the bread, you're witnessing to the person on your right and your left that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's written to the church because the world wouldn't understand that of what it means to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so that we would not take it lightly. What we're about to do is such magnificent significance. We get a warning with it, and the warning says this, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I pause right here for just a second. Because I'm aware that in a gathering of this size are people who are watching virtually. I don't know if you know this in the church setting like this, but 
there's typically 600 to 700 households who are watching every week along with you virtually. And in that size of an audience among us and among, among virtual church, you have to understand that there are individuals who have never heard this information before and never knew that they could receive God's forgiveness by asking for it, by expressing faith in Jesus Christ. If that happens to be you, before we take communion, I want you to hear this. You can receive the forgiveness of God right now in the quietness of your chair. You can tell him that you recognize you are a sinner and that you have guilt and that you believe in Jesus Christ and you want him to take it away. If you confess that before God, God will remove your sins from your past, your present, and your future. It's that complete. He deals with it all. But it requires belief on your part, a genuine belief that God actually sent Jesus to die for you. And that's what we celebrate in communion. If you're new to church, you're among individuals, hundreds of individuals, who understand the significance of what this means. If, if you're wondering, you've got more questions, I've, I've got this little thing called, Am I Really Saved? It's out there on the, the tables out in the atrium. You can pick one up and, and read through it, see if you match up with the things that are on there. But in this moment, when you examine yourself, you may recognize, I, I'm not sure I'm really in relationship with him. If you want to talk to me after the service, do that. Please do that. Or anyone else who's on staff, we'd be honored to talk with you about it. But if you know that you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to celebrate through communion right now. So I'm going to ask you to take this time to examine yourself. And when you come up to the tables here in the front or in the back, you can go to any one of the tables you would like. Pick up the elements. It's a two-cup system. Take it back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. But this moment right now, this is for you to talk to the Heavenly Father. If you're physically able to stand with me, would you do that? We understand it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he held up bread. He said, this is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. So magnificently, he held up the cup. He said, this is going to represent my blood, which is shed for you. saves us, but it's Jesus that saves us, and we have just witnessed and represented and confirmed that we believe, and we've been reminded of what you did for us. But thank you for this reminder. Thank you that you were willing to restore us and put us back into relationship with you so that we can know forgiveness of sin. We praise you for the truths we've heard this morning. Now use it in our life to speak truth to the world around us, a very hungry world. Use us that way, God. We ask for that in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a fantastic week, we hope.